How much time do we appreciate having here in this life? Today at Kingdom of the Logos, we're going to be having a really serious, really upfront and honest conversation about the fact that a lot of people are stuck in the miserable trap of atheism, which really offers no hope. And we're going to compare that to the full hope that we find in Christ Jesus. Because we don't know how much time we have, whether you're someone who lives a long life here on this earth or you're someone who passes from this life very young. But in truth, none of the antidotes, none of the remedies that the world sells to us can do anything about the principal issue of death. And we're going to come at this from a lot of different angles, but mostly we're going to be talking about being good stewards of the time that we have here in this life and how we can live in the full joy which Christ has in store for us. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there are two others here with me in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And, you know, today's conversation is largely going to piggyback off of last week's conversation on grief. But on a, a little bit lighter note of that, Pastor Mike is still wearing his hat as if he is Zorro. <laughs> and I can kind of appreciate that. It's always good to, to be having that look. Next week, I think we're going to try to be outside and have our whole show around the griddle where we're cooking mm. and talking about things. Doesn't that kind of sound fun? Yeah. yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Pastor Amanda, would you open up in prayer for us today as we begin? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings, and we thank you that you have called each and every one of us uh, to participate in your grace and, and how you are working in the world. So be with us today and be with this conversation that is had. And just everything that we do, may it be for you and for your glory. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, yesterday, I took a picture from the church's steeple. And I wish I would have put it in the studio software today so I could <laughs> show it to everyone. But it's on my Facebook page. If you go to Facebook.com and just look up J. Dylan Proctor. But I took this picture from the church's uh, steeple where you could see the field over across the street. You could see the pond. You could see all this beautiful landscape in Tennessee. And what's amazing about it is you can see a lot of colors in that picture, which aren't obvious if you're just standing on the ground. Mm. Like we here at the church property, everything is fairly flat. We're kind of on the top of several hills and ridges right here where our location is at. But when you get up in the air, you see a lot of beautiful things that you might otherwise miss. And if we can take that same concept we have in life, you know, get a little bit higher, go a little bit further from the immediate circumstances in life, because oftentimes we get so wrapped up in the moment, we get so wrapped up in our sensations and everything that comes one way or another, that we forget to kind of zoom out and look in on life and really see the bigger picture. Well, we don't know how much time we have in life. In this conversation today, it is ripped straight out of the funeral that I preached for one of my parishioners here at Jolton Church of the Nazarene, I had a young lady who passed away here in this last week, and it's something which is, is a very tragic thing. And I know all the family very well, and one of the things that I had said from the pulpit during all of this is that I, I know there are a lot of people out there who, who are grieving. They want to be with Tabitha. You want to be with that one who has passed from this life. And I know that there's a lot of people in our culture who think they are critical thinkers or free thinkers because they have separated themselves off from the church. They'll say things like, oh, you know, maybe I'm a believer, but I don't need to be within the church. I don't need to be a part of the official institution of Christianity. Or they might say, well, I'm going to be a free thinker, and I'm going to just rebel against all that and be atheistic. Well, the truth is, is that's actually a very miserable way to live. And it's a way to live that offers no hope, especially when someone you know passes away. There's no hope in that. And I mean this at a very basic, very crude level. There's just no hope in the remedies, the antidotes, the things the world give us. But Jesus doesn't want us to have that, that pain. You know, I preached this funeral. I went and looked at John chapter 11 with the death of Lazarus. And you see Mary and Martha are very upset that Lazarus has passed from this life. I mean, they're just heartbroken. They say, you know, Lord, if you would have come, our brother wouldn't have died. They feel angry at Jesus a little bit. They feel frustrated at God. But then you find there, and I believe it's verse 35 of John 11, where the verse is just simply, Jesus wept. God didn't want Lazarus to die. It wasn't that God needed another, you know, voice in the choir of heaven. God actually hated this death. Jesus was as suffered by it as anyone else was. Jesus hated this. And shortly thereafter, by the time you get in John chapter 12, Jesus is addressing his own death. And he says, you know, my soul is troubled. What then should I say to the Father? Father, remove this cup from me. 
He says, no, for this cause came I unto this hour. In other words, Jesus sees the suffering on the earth. And he even sees when people get upset and frustrated with him. And Jesus came to relieve us of that. One of the things which is really interesting is a lot of the people who get angry at the church and they kind of want to go along with these ideas the world has sold to us, God actually wants to be on your side. Jesus wants to be on Lazarus' side. And in fact, he is. He raises him from the dead. He wants to be on Mary and Martha's side. And there's this concept called Pascal's Wager that you may or may not have heard of. And the book and movie, The Life of Pi, is basically a movie, story, fictional adaptation of Pascal's Wager. And Pascal's Wager is pretty simple. You've probably thought of it at some point in time if you've never even heard the name of it. It basically means if you believe in God and you die and you find out that there is no God, you've lost nothing. However, if you believe in God and die, then there is a God, then you've gained everything. And then the inverse of Pascal's Wager is that if you reject God and you die and there is a God, well, then you've lost everything. And if you reject God and you die and there is no God, then you've lost nothing. It, it's just a very basic element that there's there's really no hope outside of God. So what are y'all's thoughts on Pascal's wager and then also how God actually wants to be on our side and bring us into a place of hope? God doesn't want us to be con- constantly and continually trapped in misery, but God wants us to be a people who live in hope. Pastor Mike? Well, you know, I think there's a couple things uh, that you have to, you said we want to get below the surface and dig a little deeper in this and look at it, you know, from a, a perspective, um, you, you know, beyond and kind of get get to the heart of things. And so uh, I think for one thing that really stands out, if you don't believe in a God and a, an atheist, then where does morality come from? And morality is therefore subjective. It is no longer objective. And when I say objective, uh, I'm talking about it. We have the scriptures that God give us and say this is, you know, objective you see what's good what's wrong what's and so we have that holy spirit to convict us of 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 sin and evil but if you don't believe in a god it invites chaos because all of a sudden your morality is subject to what you want it to be and so that in it in and of itself creates unhappiness and and it is devoid of how we're actually wired for us to believe in a God. And that I mean, that's the way God designed us. And so we lose hope, not just in death, but also from a, a morality standpoint. And I, I went ahead and put that picture into the studio software so people can see what it looks like from the steeple here at Jolt Church of the Nazarene. Also, you get a great view of my 1991 Ford Ranger. You know, we're rolling around in the old square body here. It's the 80s Ranger that when they made them a few years straight into the 90s, they, they held over for two years. <laughs> um, but building up something that you said there, Pastor Mike, we when it comes to the question of hope, we as a people, we're always looking to fasten ourselves to something. And where does your morality come from? One of the problems that I have with a lot of modern movements politically is, is a lot of times people want the effects of Christ dying on the cross, even if they don't say this out loud, like they want the effects of forgiveness and freedom and good things like that without Christ being the cause. They want the effects of tradition without tradition being the cause. This is one of my big beefs that I have with the political ideology of libertarianism. Like a lot of times it believes you can get to the effects of the church without actually having the church as the cause. Um, and and you, you find this largely all over the place, actually, in pretty much all modern politics, where people want the effects of virtue without ever demanding any real virtue of anyone. But we're always looking to fasten ourselves to something. And this is why I always say, even though people a lot of times will think they're atheistic, they're really not. They have something that's going to govern what is good and evil. G.K. Chesterton writes, when the government removes the God, the government becomes the God. And you've also, we've seen this throughout time. When Nazism was coming to power, one of the things they needed to do was really co-opt the German church. They needed to remove the true God, and they needed to take a hold to the pulpit and manipulate it for a wicked, wicked cause. You see this even in modern China, where they want to remove the crosses and things from churches, and they want to replace them with pictures of President Xi. It's not so much that 
you can really escape the question of where do I get my morality because it's going to come from somewhere. But what is so terrible is so often in life we attach ourselves to things which don't actually give hope. And we in the church, we have got to be more assertive about preaching about the hope of Christ Jesus, letting go of the stuff which is destructive. Even within the church, there's a lot of stuff we've got to let go of. I mean, a good portion of the New Testament is Paul basically telling people, you know, let go of that. Don't do any of the Judaizing. You know, Christ comes to obviously fulfill the law. Let go of a lot of the things that you've brought into the church that aren't really life in the church and hold on to the hope, the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And in that, you'll find a beautiful life. Well, we've talked a lot. It's time to bring Pastor Amanda into this. (laughs) Amanda, talk to us about hope and how we've got to fasten ourselves to that hope. Nothing else. Or actually, you can just go wherever you want to. Well, and I think that's... uh, I'm trying to, to think and articulate my thoughts um, or gather my thoughts well because I, I think you're taking a very optimistic view of Pascal's wager where I might take a less optimistic perspective. Okay. Um, and so I don't know if we're just like missing each other <laughs> in, in language. And I was trying to think of this even when we were in our our uh, prep for, for this episode. but um, And I, I just couldn't get my brain wrapped around it, kind of having an off day. But anyways, it, there, there's this idea, you know, we're... Uh, Pascal's wager can be a great introduction into the life of God, but I don't know if it is comprehensive enough to take us deep enough. Oh, I totally agree with okay. that. Okay. Because <laughs> so, it's, 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 it's totally a utilitarian argument, right, which and, ultimately and, makes it a little bit of her, her heresy. See, but I'm just bringing <laughs> it up to say, at a basic level, we can all understand this. Well, and, and I think that's, yeah, there, there's, there is something about that. But, yeah, you can use, uh, although uh, Pascal would use his wager, uh, I would keep wanting to say Pedro Pascal, but that's an actor, not the philosopher we're talking about. But Pascal's wager, um, you could replace Yahweh, Jehovah, with any god, and right. you can make this formula work. So that's where it's 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 not, it, again, it's I think it's something to begin to, turn our wheels and begin to think deeply and that that's a good thing but then we also have to see where it's not going to take us to the nth degree because that's the thing god doesn't want us just for utility or god doesn't want us to want god just for utility oh because then i get to escape the punishment if god does exist god wants us be and i think that's the other thing about hope because if hope is paul would say that if christ is not resurrected then then we are to be pitied most among all people but if the resurrection is not real today for us today, if it all it is is one day someday, then we are, I think we also, Paul would say, we are to be pitied most amongst all people. That the hope that uh, Pascal was, even though kind of limitedly, but still trying to push us towards, is a hope that says, yes, one day I'll be reunited with my loved one. But it's also the hope that writes Hebrews 12. This is we are surrounded now by a great cloud of witnesses. And I don't understand the mystery. I don't get it. Um, But somehow, some way, we can enjoy fellowship, even with our loved ones who have passed on. And I think the most beautiful expression of this is communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, Holy Eucharist, where we do literally commune with the broken body and the spilt blood that has been offered to all believers across all time, across all space, and somehow even has caught up those, even those who, who are not yet participating in the full expression of God's sacrifice, that that sacrifice has still been extended to them. And so that there is nowhere outside God's grace, that really there's nowhere outside the the church universal. And again, that I'm not trying to co-opt people's free will to, to refuse that, but this expression in communion calls us to hope here and now there and then, all of the above, all of creation, all of people. And I think that's what you were talking about earlier. Everyone believes in something because we are believing creatures. Right. That's kind of what makes us human. It's it's not our opposable thumbs. It's not even our ability to invent because we've seen animals be able to kind of make tools and things like that. Some of it can be our persistence more other than creatures. But I think what really gives us what makes human beings humans is we believe and, and we believe believe so beautifully and so hugely and i'm not even sure that's the right word but <laughs> our belief is what drives us and moves us so we're all going to believe in something and because god is god and has created the earth everything we believe is going to somehow either move us towards god or away from god right 
And and that's where we have to then, I think, take um, Pascal's wager and say, okay, this is where we're starting at. That we, I believe in something, but where is this belief going to take me? Yeah. And I think that's the bigger question in where, and I think where you're going with hope is will this belief not only give me something to think about, but will it sustain me in that hope? All right, so I want to build off that in a couple of ways. And okay. you ask if hugely is a word. <laughs> only if you pronounce it with a Y. If you can go huge, hugely, then it's a word. <laughs> okay. um, we may have some fun with the English language at the end of here because I love old English. Uh, so you've talked about hope, and I want to just point out the reason why I bring up Pascal's rager is because it doesn't actually do a lot to give you the affirmative case for Jesus beyond utility. Because again, like you said, you can put in any God idol. You can put in the golden calf from, mm. you know, the people of God rolling out of Egypt. They have a golden calf. You can put that there. But while it doesn't give you the affirmative case for Jesus, it does do a lot to disprove the fallacy of non-belief. And that's kind of the only reason I brought mm. it up. It, it, it does well to disprove the non-belief, but it doesn't ever make the, the real affirmative case. But here's where we get into that. This is really, I want to I want to play with some ideas from Pastor Amanda. And I know Pastor Mike is about to explode over there. <laughs> this is why I keep a notebook, write down ideas so they don't slip away from me. Mm. But Pastor Amanda, so we've talked a lot about objectifying people mm. in the modern world. How, how it's obviously a problem when you cease to see someone as being a unique man and woman created in the image of God with a beautiful soul, regardless of where their life's at, where they're from, what their circumstances are, just having that inherent value. But one of the problems with Pascal's wager too is that in a sense it objectifies God mm. and it makes God into just an object that out there I can pick up if I want, I can leave if I don't, and it's purely just in my will of how I want to treat it. God is just an object. You mentioned communion and fellowship with God, and there's something to that that is alive there's something reciprocal about that where it's not just God as an object, but there's something living there. There's something that does have joy in it. And there's there's something really unique about interacting with a living God as opposed to just the gold statue, the golden calf, you know, whatever. Whatever lifeless object God we have. And I just wanted to see what your thoughts are on the problem of objectifying God and reducing God down to utility as opposed to living with God. Well, I think that God will always fail. The God that we objectify will never fulfill us. This this is a prosperity gospel at its best or its worst, yeah. however you want to qualify that, right? Because if, if God is only God when when we are victorious, yeah. then all of a sudden we're going to have some real good we're going to have real trouble with a crucified Christ. Right. Um we're we're going to have some difficulty with a kingdom that looks like servanthood. Yeah. So so this is this is the paradox of the gospel uh, of God. Uh, of the world. This is, this is grace. Um, right. And so we have to understand that every time we have tried to objectify God or put boundaries around God or say, God, you can only act like, or look like, or do this because this is what benefits me is every time God has crossed those boundaries, has destroyed those boundaries. Like you were talking about the Judaizers earlier, right? They really thought they figured out how God was going to work in the world. It looked like, it looked like this. And then here comes a, a, a for all counts and purposes, an uneducated carpenter from uh nazareth saying hmm what if the kingdom of god looked like this and then later on after he dies and supposedly resurrects there's a very well educated but somehow ineloquent man who goes across the gentile empire and says the kingdom of god looks like this and and every time we try to objectify jesus even every time we try to objectify paul and let's be honest the church has done a really great job at objectifying both of them every time that has happened prophets evangelists mystics, whatever you want to call them, have risen up and said, what if God's grace instead is so much bigger than you can imagine? And, 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 and for in real, truly, there is right ways of speaking about God. There are right practices. We call those orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Those are good, right, and true. And yet God is always bigger than those orthodoxies and orthopraxies. Right. And that's our hope is not resting in what we think of God. Our hope does not rest even in our doctrines. Don't burn me at the stake. Our hope isn't even in scripture. Our hope is in God, which yep. who reveals God's self through those things. Right, right. But, and, and I think that's where uh, I just finished a discussion with my mom and my sister uh, on a book we've been reading about this idea of just really looking at the bigger picture like you're talking about, stepping back and saying we are believing creatures. So what do we believe? 
And it's good to have those principles, but when God pushes us to the edge of the things we think and we know, what are we going to do? How do we respond to that grace? And I think that's, it's hopeful, but it's also dangerous. And that's where we get into the dangerous God because God cannot be contained. Right. And that is, that is scary. (laughs) And, And just to add some clarity to all this and, because if the pitchforks are getting burned for this program, I, I claim all the pitchforks for everything <laughs> said here. Um, send them to 6186 Eaton's Creek Road, Jolton. Church well, I won't give you pitchforks to deal on your own, so you can send them to me too, um, well, whatever Trinity's address is. Yeah, Trinity Church of the Nazarene, Trinity, send your pitchforks. Yeah. <laughs> but Amanda's speaking from the perspective of the people who are opposing Jesus when they're talking about the supposedly resurrected. Yes. yes. So just to be clear here. <laughs> We, we we firmly believe. No, in the I believe in the resurrection. Yeah, no, I was just saying, like, yeah, the the, Gen- the Judaizers, and then also even the the Gentile world that was speaking to the the insane gospel that yeah. Paul and Jesus were proclaiming, or Paul was proclaiming about Jesus that Jesus proclaimed. Yeah, and and using that language, if there is no resurrected Christ, the Scripture has no relevance. Really, mm. the creeds have no relevance, and so. Again, this is real critical thinking. You put things in their proper order. When there is a resurrection, suddenly the scriptures become extremely important Mm -hmm. and holding them together intact in that careful tension they have together. And even those things which seem paradoxical when you weigh out the complexities of scripture, you find that when there's a living God behind it, Mm -hmm. suddenly, oh, like, my goodness, like it becomes really, really important. Pastor Mike, I know you've been about to to rupture (laughs) over there. I think your eyeballs are going to just burn a hole through me. Speak to me, Pastor Mike. Well, you know, I think to to start with, you know, the way we God created us, we are a people uh, that desire fellowship and communion, not only with God, but with one another. And so there is this understanding or, or, you know, something that's it's part of each and every human being that we long not to be alone. Mm. And so uh, and so even there are those atheists groups who gather and and you know believe it or not they they are some type of religion where they are they are gathering and they may have a talk of encouragement it looks a lot like the church they may even sing a song or two but you know i'm i think we have to understand and for and i may give y'all a little pushback i don't want to objectify god but if we do not look at God as being supreme and him revealing himself through his scriptures, then what is the question of ethics? It, right. it, it, and so I don't want to objectify God, but I, I believe that God's word revealed to us helps us understand how to live a godly life. Yeah. And that's what God calls us to do. And so I believe the beauty of the Holy Spirit is where those laws can be broken down and used outside of grace and meant to hurt one another, the God's Holy Spirit comes in and and helps us make decisions in those areas where, you know, sometimes the, it, you're, you're trying to do the best in that situation, so to speak, um, that there might be a place where, you know, whether, you know, you're going to uh, you, you have to choose the lesser of two evils at times, so, so to speak. But uh, I would say that you you almost, if you do not have a God, then where in the world does your, if you, it's that's no place for you to get any substance of what God, how God wants you to live. And I know I sound like I'm talking in circles because I'm trying to get my hands, my, my words wrapped around what I'm trying to say, my thoughts. But yeah. Um, but just, do you see where I'm going with what I'm saying? Sure, I do. And I don't think this is against what y'all are saying about objectifying God, but I do believe that God reveals things to us through Scripture mm-hmm. oh, yeah, no, to, le- yeah, to lead that. a life. And without that, then chaos is sure. is very much ready to slip in the door. Right. No, no. What? What I'm talking about, and I think this is what Amanda's talking about too, is when you treat God as something which really doesn't exist as a supreme living God, but it's just something that's only there if I -hmm. I will it to be there. Mm. Like if I throw this ink pen away, it's gone. If I decide I'm going to pick up the ink pen and use it, I use it. It's I'm the supreme. I'm the sovereign Mm -hmm. one in that scenario. And I can go over there and interact with that if I want to. That's that's what I'm talking about. When we treat ourselves as we are the supreme ones and God is just something I can pick up if I want to, leave behind if I don't. God gets to be who I want God to be. 
and this this kind of rolls back even into the Ten Commandments where God says, don't take my, my name in vain. Mm. God is saying, don't just brand stuff as being mine when it's not. Don't call your ideas mine when it's they're yours. basically idolatry. Yeah, it's, it's idolatry. So that's what I'm talking about. So I think we're actually on the same page that God is supreme and sovereign. And God has certainly uniquely revealed himself through Scripture, and it's mm-hmm. a great thing to fasten ourselves to. So we're kind of all on the same page in that, just to clear up some of the language. But it's also good to clear those things up. Well, and I think the evidence of the uh, transphysical soul, that there's research on that that says, you know, it, that even though we have mind and thought and everything, there are these, these uh, um, you know, studies in, uh, from not even Christians, from uh, peer-reviewed articles and stuff that state and, and show evidence of those who've had what we call near-death experiences. And so there is so much evidence for God that when we start looking at, at beyond just the scriptures, we can find tremendous amounts of evidence from a scientific, um, you know, model. Yeah. Well, you know, now we're going to go down a rabbit trail. Hmm. We're going to be talking about being stewards of our time, but Pastor Mike brought up, you know, proof for the soul, proof of God. And I, the older I get, what I thought was the weakest argument for God when I was a kid, when people would talk about beauty, like go outside and see the birds of the air, see the mountains. The older I get, the more I realize, no, that that is one of the most remarkable evidences for God out there is just the sheer concept of beauty. Hmm. You know, I've got a dog. Um, and again, people are made in the image of God. Dogs might have some of the fingerprints of God in them, but they're not the unique creature made in that. Baron really doesn't care if he makes an ugly mess or not, <laughs> like at all. And he's actually quite happy with an ugly mess. And when you look at a lot of creatures in nature, some of them are pretty, some of them are ugly. Like some, even if you look at something like a bug, which some people are grossed out by, some people are not, there's a huge difference. Some bugs have really pretty colors, like a dragonfly is really colorful. And then you get some moths that are basically the color of dirt and look like dirt. But the thing is, without God, there's no explanation for why anything would be more beautiful than something else. Why would it be better to be looking at a mountain than a ditch or a septic tank? Like why would beauty even be a thing? Why would music be mathematical? Why would it sound pleasing to hear pressure of waves going through your ear? Why would it be satisfying to hear a morally compelling story without there being some larger truth? And to Pastor Mike's point about your ethics have to come from somewhere, that you just didn't wake up one day and be like, oh, this is good, that is bad. No, that comes from somewhere. But beauty comes from somewhere too. Why is it more compelling to see You know, the purples and oranges come over a mountain landscape when you're up in Gatlinburg and you see the smoke of the mountains and you see these beautiful colors. Why is that more compelling than when you go outside and you turn over a rock and there's like three worms under there? Like (laughs) when I'm a grub worm, this is just a nasty, nasty looking vile little grotesque monster. Like why is that repulsive? And the mountain beautiful because they're both like fully functional parts of nature. They're kind of Mm. necessary to the same ecosystem. But yet we are moved and stirred by beauty. Like there's no real way to explain that without God. Pastor Amanda, thoughts on all this? Yeah, well, and I, I think that's where I was trying to go in what I was saying is that um, when we try to objectify God, then it, it, I'm not doing away with Scripture. Uh, I'm, I'm a pastor. If, if I didn't believe in Scripture, I'd have a different job. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't get paid well enough and deal with enough stuff not to. But anyways, um. But we do see, like you're saying, we go out into creation and there, there can be a revelation that happens out there that does impact our morality in a way that may not be as explicit right. as Scripture is. And I think also to your point, I, I like you know, your, your drastic difference of uh, you know, the, the sunset versus the grub worms. <laughs> and yet at the same time, I almost want to push back at it because even in the grub worm, Right. We see we see God's fingerprints. And uh, part of the discussion I had this morning, um, they they, someone was talking about how uh, relationship we know God's character by relationship and how we can even understand who God is when we look at uh, our pets. And so I had the video camera on my my greyhound Duke and he's just laying there in all of his lazy glory. And they said something to the effect of like. Duke reveals God to you, can be God to you, not a God, but 
revealing God to you. Yeah. And Duke kind of just perked his ear up. I'm not sure if he really knew what was being said, but almost in a way of like saying, yeah, I know that. Like, <laughs> like I can I can be that to you. Um, like, because Duke is, Duke's pretty spoiled. But my, my point being, it, and I think this is where, uh, this is where we, we have to kind of sometimes let go. And not that we give up scripture or we give up tradition. Actually, they help inform us and give us the right lenses to interpret all this information. But we, we see this, this hope in Christ that moves us and sustains us in ways like you're talking about, like, what if we have to pick between the lesser of two evils? What if that's never been discussed in scripture? What if, what if our, our morality, you know, I don't know if in a hundred years some kind of scientific discovery has not been really understood or our morals up to that point really haven't explicitly told us how to handle that situation. This is where God, God's hope and continual revelation sustains us because it tells us that there are no God forsaken places. So whether we're looking at the sunset in Gatlinburg on the Smokies or we're looking at the grub worms under the rock or anything in between, God's grace is already there and working. And that sounds really pretty but it is really hard to work out because it does um it it calls us to build structures but also to let go of them and there's a continual uh forget the author's name but it's ordering disordering and reordering this continual process of understanding but also letting go and um that's not easy because it sounds easy. I can say that sitting here in this nice room, air conditioned room in the middle of a, a, a summer rainstorm. But that's very hard to do when we're going through, like we're talking about grief and the struggles of life. Your life in that moment is being disordered. So how do you hope that there's still a God that is ordering when the pain seems so deep and so fundamental that even scripture can't touch? And not that it can't, but I, I'm just saying like that's, I think I'm getting off on a tangent, and I apologize. So I'm not even sure what we're talking about anymore. But I'll, I'll, I'll well, go take it back I'll, to I'll Mike. Slip in. Okay. Um, the the only person to ever defend grubworms, um, <laughs> which I don't let that stand. They're creatures made by God too. So if anybody wants to take it for grubworms, they're um, still not coming in my house. But yeah, okay. <laughs> they can be under the rock. They can be under the rock. I don't know, but my my heaven does not contain mosquitoes. I don't know. I have to wait for the only therapy. redeemed mosquitoes. Yes, I don't know. God, I just pray. You know, the I trust God on whatever's going to happen, but uh, I can't imagine mosquitoes in in, See, in, in paradise. But here, See, here's kind of my my own. hope is there is there, <laughs> mosquitoes have been um, transformed uh, mightily, mightily. <laughs> See, here's where here's where my wager comes on that. Though. Like, what is the price? What is the price? Because if animals are redeemed and brought into heaven. If, if the price of me getting to be with, like, my little dog Charlie again is mosquitoes, I would probably take that. <laughs> if you've ever had a really good dog, you'd be like, man, the choice is I get to be with, like, my best dog ever for eternity or mosquitoes. I guess I'll put up with the mosquitoes to be with that really good dog again. Yeah. But um, to, to kind of some, bring some points here, we're going to get into Scripture. I think biblical literacy is one of the things which is, is really killing the church right now because we, we need to spend more time in Scripture than we currently do. Just everywhere, up up the quantity of time in Scripture. We've always got to do that. There's so much to learn in there. And we, we do find that there's really not anything new under the sun. God has given us a lot. But then we have the question of discernment. How do we apply the morality in Scripture to the peculiarities and specifics of life around us? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about like a dog revealing stuff to us, I actually think one of the reasons why dog is man's best friend is a little bit by design. You know, wolves naturally in the wild, they organize themselves a lot like people. They, they're in family structures and things of that nature. But when a man is with a dog or when Amanda's with Duke, we, when I'm with Baron, dogs understand that it's good to be with the master. They show something to us kind of from an inverted way. And not that we're God and God to the dogs, but we are the master and the dog is the servant. And God is our master and we are his servant. The dog, as the servant, understands how good it is to be with the master. Like, it's crazy. Dogs have this just long-suffering, endless impulse to be with the master. How, like, how many sermons do you think have dog stories in them? A lot. Oh, yeah. A lot. A lot. Uh, yeah. At least and, the and ones I, think, I preach. <laughs> yeah. 
I think there is so many uh, parallels there, like right. you talk about, and, and uh, you know, I think that's why we see so many. Well, I mean, think about how much a dog wants to be with its master when people just don't want to be with God as their master. Like, it's it's a crazy thing. It shows you just how degenerate and broken we are. Like, the fall really happened because we should want to be with God the same way a dog wants to be with its master. That That is how how Adam and Eve naturally should have wanted to be with dog, with God. Um, not that they would be panting like dogs or anything like that, but but this this love, this desire that says it's just good, it's joyful to be with the master. That's really how I feel like Adam and Eve should have desired that. Mm-hmm. Again, they wouldn't look like dogs, but in the the human version of that, we should want that joy. Hmm. But instead, we're degenerate reprobates who shake our fist at God and say. I'm going to be Jonah. I would rather sit out here and be pouty than be happy, even though everything went well. Like, that's the crazy thing about Jonah. And it happens in our life. Like, even when people have things going really well, they'll they'll want to be miserable and pouty. And then oftentimes you'll find people in the valley of the shadow of death who do find joy. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how, how broken our mind is when we're separated from God. And once we are reunited with God, which sometimes is easier in the valley of the shadow of death, we find ourselves a little bit more sane. Okay, so let's talk about being a steward of our time. We're speaking 36 of which. <laughs> Speaking of which, speaking of which, 36 minutes into a 1-hour program. We are on now point 2. <laughs> in the modern era, we've really quit talking about virtue in the sense that we'll send kids to school. When I was in elementary school, we had the pillars of character traits and every year they'd give different awards for different character traits in middle school they did the same thing and they had all these little coupons and things you would get and maybe you got a reward here or there when i was in high school we talked about making leaders i was part of the youth leadership cheatham county association or something had a crazy long acronym it was associated with the university of tennessee we always want to make leaders make more and more leaders but in truth not everybody is cut out to lead in every situation In fact, I think one of the problems that is plaguing the modern church is that a lot of times within our denominational hierarchy, we sometimes put people in positions who might otherwise be excellent pastors, excellent teachers even, but they're not cut out to to really lead the church through cultural battles to actually stand up and, and defeat evils out there in the world. And that's just not the place that they're a good shepherd. People have different talents. They have different skills. I mean, the Bible is very clear on this, even in the Old Testament. Even back there, I know I quote Exodus 18 all the time with Jethro and Moses, but some people are good with 10 people. Some people are good with 1,000. Some people are good with, you know, 10,000. Who knows? And I think this is one of the reasons why, as myself a pastor of a smaller church, I oftentimes am not frustrated with the existence of, like, bigger churches. I'm not jealous of that. I realize some people, if you put them in a church where there's five members, 10 members, 50 members, a lot of people that would crush. They wouldn't survive their will. Other people, they might be able to go to a bigger church and maybe they're not able to take half a talent and turn it into a full talent, but they can take whatever God gave them and return five talents on it. They may not be good at starting a program so they can go and attach themselves to an existing one. People have different talents. God calls us to many different things. Like God is sovereign. He He's worked this out a lot more than we work this out. But we've talked so much about making people leaders that we've forgotten to have people be a steward of their life, to actually build up virtues in everything you do. And going back to my picture there from Jolton Church of the Nazarene Steeple, when you zoom out and look at life, we need to be people who aren't always wondering how we can be like the leader, the one who is dominant in a situation, though obviously when those hours arise, do it. Mm -hmm. But how do you actually discipline yourself, you in your life? How do you make sure you've got the speck out of your eye so then when you go to deal with your neighbor, you go to deal with your brother, your sister, your whoever it is that's been trusted to you in your life, when you go to help them with the speck in their eye or log, whatever size it may be, whatever the problem is, how do you be a good steward of your time? Because we don't have an idea of how much time we have on this earth. This last week, I've had a lot of funerals in my life. I know Pastor Mike has had a lot of funerals. There's been a lot of deaths and things of that nature of people, some children who have passed away, some young adults, some who are elderly, people in all spaces of life, to kind of use that language, in all areas of life, we've had people pass away. We have no idea how much time we have on this earth. We, we really don't. So how do we make sure 
that we are running our race well. And here's where I'm going to get into some scripture. The scripture I want to share from this is in Acts chapter 18. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, because he was a tent maker, as they were, and he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath he argued and reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, I added those last words, to believe in Jesus Christ, but that's, that's why he's in the synagogue. Now, what we have here, Paul has a lot going on in life. They've stoned Paul. They've stoned Paul so hard that people thought he was dead. I don't know about y'all. If you want a, a reminder that you're mortal, I will have people literally kill you and think you're dead, but by the grace of you God, dead, you're not yeah. dead. Yeah. Um, Paul knows that he only has as much time as is allotted to him. The world's trying to kill him. People, people mad at him. Rome, you know, Jews, Gentiles, a lot of people after Paul. Paul also knows that Jesus is going to return. You would think that Paul is really living a life of distress, but he's not. Hmm. He comes from Athens into Corinth, and Paul had some bad, bad episodes in the events leading up to this. Acts chapter 17 is bad. Bad. They treat him bad. In Thessalonica, they hunt him down in Berea. He goes to Athens, and the people there love their idols so much they can't be bothered. They're like, oh, Jesus is a great another perspective. Bye. We don't care. By the time he gets to Corinth, he stays there for about a year and a half. And using his time, he's simply working with his hands as a tent maker, enjoying life with Priscilla and Aquila, this man and woman who... We don't know if they're Christians or not at the beginning of the chapter, but certainly by the end of the chapter, they're Christians who teach doctrine quite well. Hmm. They're doing a lot of evangelism. And Paul spends a year and a half just working with people. When it's Sabbath, I'll go over there and argue in the synagogue. I'll preach when I need to. But I'm also making tents. I think this is a great chapter that emphasizes that tension between the urgency of Jesus returning and knowing that we're mortals, that we will die, while also structuring your life well where you are being effective in many different areas. Pastor Mike, your thoughts on this? Well, I think, you know, for the Apostle Paul and all the uh, apostles, you know, they had this understanding that this life is so short compared to eternity. And so they had a healthy uh, perspective of of eternity. And I've often used... uh, uh, more of a John Wesley understanding that, you know, say you take a, the Cheatham Lake or the Cumberland River here that is uh, not too far from us, and we said, you know, if if you could imagine, well, that's probably not big enough, so let's go to the oceans, or, or let's just say the whole earth. Well, let's, let's go a little bigger and say the, the whole universe was filled with water, and every day one drop come out of that. Um, it, it, if that universe... Every day dropped a water until the moment that it was completely empty, then you would only scratch the threshold of eternity, that it is without end. And so our, our apostles had this tremendous understanding that this life in this body is not the end, but truly eternal life with Christ is the beginning. And therefore, they live courageously without fear. And you see the work that God was able to do, not only in them, but through them, because they had this tremendous understanding of, of time in, of, in this body, which mm-hmm. is so, I mean, it's not even a, a speck in the, in the sense of eternity. And I think something like almost a, like not to disagree with it, just kind of switch it around a little bit, right? Is the infinite will always reveal itself in the finite. That they, they understood they were but this itty bitty little speck in the grand scheme of things. And yet they understood that the itty bitty little speck could cause a ripple effect throughout all of eternity. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they could do it. And I think that's why Paul can, knowing that, like, uh, as Peter would say, that Christ is coming soon but knew that there was urgency and yet he did not need to be desperate, that he could take a year and a half 
And he could sit with people and teach Aquila and Priscilla and make tents with them. And yeah, he still participated in the life of the quote-unquote organized, you know, kind of institution of religion. But even outside of the quote-unquote, which that language is weird. But anyways, um, he could participate in all of life, in all of its aspects, and be a faithful minister of the gospel because he was participating in all these different aspects, whether it was in the synagogue or in the marketplace uh, or down by the river to pray, or wherever he found himself, in the midst of the mob trying to kill him, or, you know, honestly, they could have successfully killed him, and Jesus resurrected him, and nobody knows. I don't know. But in all these things, Paul could be faithful, because he knew he had a mission that impacted every aspect of his life. And so, yeah, he could be urgent without really being frantic. And so whether it was the Romans trying to kill him, or the Greeks, or... uh the Judaizers or just the random villain of the week, almost like some kind of episodical uh, TV show. He could be faithful. And I think that's the other really interesting thing. And often in the church, we use this language of tent makers, especially when we talk about missionaries. And I think we sometimes miss the magnitude of what this passage is leading us to. It's not just uh, missionaries who are commissioned by their denomination to go off in an airplane to some random country of the world. But it's all of us in whatever occupation we have, we can do it in such a way that we teach people, we show people, we love people. And maybe, you know, Paul in, in Corinth is able to establish a church that's going to give him headaches until, you know, his life is done. And honestly, still gives us headaches 2,000 years later. But um, Paul is able to do great ministry, even in those times where it didn't seem like he was doing ministry because he was still ministering he was still yeah. existed within the life of, of christ and and i think that's really what can be good news to us often when you see like you're saying being good stewards of our time sometimes we're like oh are we doing enough are we doing enough are we like i haven't i'm not the pastor of the large church or i'm not you know mi uh, leading 1200 uh programs or or ministries or whatever fill in the blank here you know i didn't lead a person to christ this year and those are good things i'm not dismissing them Sometimes, sometimes the hard work is hard work. And it's about that faithful endurance in whatever work, whatever season, whatever time we find ourselves. And so sometimes we find ourselves like Esther standing before King. And sometimes we're like Paul sitting with Aquila and Priscilla in the marketplace. And, and I think that's, that's what being a good steward, having that tangible thing to hold on to, I guess, for our audience, is whatever, wherever you find yourself, you live in such a way that God is magnified. All right. I want to build off this a little bit, and I'm going to bring up a concept that I'm just going to give a name right now that I'm going to call <laughs> holiness immunity. Okay. But before I get into that, one of the interesting things about Christianity that is core to Christian living and the Christian worldview is that when you talk to Pastor Amanda about those little events that can happen in a finite person's lifetime that might cause a ripple throughout eternity, mm. they are just as likely to happen from Paul sitting down with Priscilla and Aquila making a tent as they are from somebody in the middle of an amphitheater with thousands and thousands of people sitting around watching yeah, yeah. and this, the emperor there screaming and it's like all of the world meets. When you think of something like the death of St. Polycarp or some of these other people where there's this great theatrical moment where the kings of the earth come together and you've got one of the great like figures of the church and they're about to go to battle and somebody's going to die. Mm. Those ripple effects are just as likely to happen in the amphitheater as they are down by the riverside where Paul is talking to Lydia. And that is fundamentally true throughout scripture. Mm -hmm. Like whether it's Moses's mother, Jochebed deciding, you know what? They're not killing my baby today. They're not killing my baby today. I can't save my baby. I've got to trust him to God, and I'm going to put him in a basket. Mm -hmm. Whether it is that small movement, which we oftentimes see that moment only from the tail end of it and forget that if you could just imagine the crushing hour that that mother goes through, mm -hmm. when this is, in fact, the most hopeful thing she can do, the courage that that takes for Jochebed, whether it be that moment or David slaying Goliath, those are both moments where those ripple effects happen. Mm -hmm. But it's just as likely to happen at that quiet moment next to the riverside, which may not have been quiet. Who knows? <laughs> Moses may have been a bad baby. Who knows? <laughs> Pastor Mike. 
you know, I think for the Apostle Paul, who had this calling and also had this understanding that he was a stewardship of the gospel, that even in the in a lot of these letters we have, we find him in prison, and mm-hmm. and he just don't stop there. But again, he starts ministering to to the guards. He starts ministering mm-hmm. to uh, his fellow prisoners, and so you you even see him making a statement in Philippians that that you know. Um, you know, the gospel's being preached, my work wasn't in vain, um, and, and he's also saying that, you know, some preach for out of envy, mm-hmm. some preach to really, let's just say it differently than Paul does, but to climb the political ladder or inside the church or whatever, and, and then Paul is stating that he preaches out of love and some are preaching out of love, and that is the, the best way to go. But nonetheless, he rejoices because the gospel is being preached, mm-hmm. and and that's an important thing for us to hear. And the church has never had just, you know, complete perfection in the sense mm-hmm. of, there's always been issues to resolve, right. and I, and you well, know I, I think you, you, that's true. most of what our New Testament letters are about is resolve trying issues. to resolve and to, and to stay focused on the ministry of reconciliation mm-hmm. and the love of God. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to this word holiness immunity. Okay. So Paul is confident; he's not just perpetual depression, woe and lamentation. Paul is confident; he doesn't have to be desperate. And why? Because he's living a life of holiness. If you are living a life of holiness, you're going to be immune to a lot of the miseries the world puts upon you. Now, let me be clear on what I mean with that. That doesn't mean prosperity gospel, there won't be suffering. You very well may be crucified upside down, sawed in half longitudinally, burned alive on a griddle, beheaded. A lot of bad things can happen. However, you in your own mind, and this is a little bit of a Anne Frank's dad statement, when you're there in Auschwitz, they can touch the body but they cannot take the soul unless you let them. Hmm. If you will step into that joy of Christ, you will have an immunity to a lot of the stuff in the world that wants to bring you chaos. Hmm. You will have, you'll be able to walk in joy in the valley of the shadow of death. You will be able to be someone who has been stoned, been run out of town, had people hunt you, not just run you out of town, run you out of town, then try to hunt you down in the next town. Drag you out of town. Drag you out of town. You can be someone who's had all that stuff happen to you, but yet still be fine making tents. You don't have to prove yourself to anyone because mm-hmm. you're not here to do that. You know, you often find people who aren't confident and oftentimes trying to prove themselves. Um, you'll also find people become depressed. There's a lot of different ways that manifest. But you'll be somebody who's confident, who'll be well fortified, generally healthy and whole. That holiness immunity will help you persevere through a lot of things in life. And, you that's know, right. I think that's where we see the Philippians letter that Paul writes being referred to as the epistle of joy. He's writing it from prison, and yet regardless of his situation and his (laughs) circumstances, he finds this joy in Christ Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God in its fullest. And he wants to preach it. He wants to share it. And regardless of his situation, he finds joy by staying focused on what Christ is going to bring and has already brought and broken in, but he knows Christ is coming again. And I feel like today the church needs to to remind and keep on the forefront Christ is coming again because you said, you know, we've had funerals. We don't know how long we have, each and every one of us, but we don't know when Christ is returning, and it could be very soon, and I wouldn't be surprised. All right, we're going to wrap things up that when the program's not over we're going to wrap up this conversation and then i'm going to throw out something just fun for pastor mike and amanda to respond to mm-hmm. wrapping this up the whole title of our program is the time you have mm-hmm. we don't know how much time we have we know definitively that it is miserable to live without hope i mean that's pascal's wager you're, you're going to lose if you separate yourself from god a lot of people think they're free thinkers for buying into atheism you're not a free thinker you've just drunk the poison the world prepared for you but the alternative is not just to get the golden calf idol or just any any religion that's out there. Jesus is the only way to life eternal. He came, he suffered, and died so that people could walk into that. And this this is the place where there is hope. You don't know how much time you have, but there's hope in Christ Jesus. And when you step into that, you can zoom out and look at 
jolting from the steeple and see just how beautiful it is. You can zoom out and see your own life and see how beautiful it is. And there's so much hope there and life and life abundant. Okay. We need to do some more shows on cryptids. I don't know about y'all as pastors. Oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. You, so you're ready. I'm, I'm always ready for cryptids. Amanda's face is just perfect right now. by the name of Sasquatch. <laughs> People ask me all the time, do I believe in cryptids? I, I get that specific question. Mm. I get people ask me about Bigfoot, about ghosts, about just crazy stuff, the chupacabra. <laughs> so, and we also know there is some wild stuff out there. Mm. Yeah. If you've seen what the skull of Mary Magdalene looks like, oh. that that is worse than a cryptid. In fact, after I ask this question, I'll pull the picture so I can show people online. We... We as the church, this is something that, that's curious. So I'm going to throw out some questions for y'all. And how we're going to do this is we're going to rate this from 1 to 25. I'm going to ask y'all four questions. Y'all are going to give me a rating. And one is going to be low. Okay. Yeah. One, one is the, the lowest, meaning the, the miserable pit that Joseph's brother threw him into over the, the colorful coat. Um, so that's one. 25 is something exciting. The the joy that Paul has with Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth. So scale of one to twenty five. The first question: What do y'all think the actual likelihood is of a creature like Sasquatch existing? We're gonna we're gonna start with that one. The other three questions I'm gonna ask are gonna be more biblical related because I get them. Mm-hmm. But since we're talking cryptids. Stare into the void. Take the first one first. A cup of one ice cream for me. What do you think the, a <laughs> yeah. realistic question for that is? And I love Amanda's laughing at this. Pastor Mike, truthful answer. People ask truthful us all the time. Answer, truthful or, answer. What do you or think the opinionated answer on Pastor Mike? Give me an answer. One to twenty-five. <laughs> and this is subjective, chance. not objective. Twenty-five. Twenty-five. Yeah. Can you say? Give me at least a one more sentence. Why you think that is? I don't know. I think I think it reaches back to that. For most people who who uh, they just want to see, they want Sasquatch to exist. We have found um, animals that were once cryptids that are now for sure there. Whether it be the giant squid or whatever, but I think there's this hope that it's out there for a lot of people. And then there are those who have evidence and all the DNA and whatever. But I, I, I'm, I'm at the point where the cryptid lives in the person's mind, regardless mm. of, of what. But, I, hey, there's a lot of evidence. I, I'm going to give it a 25. and Throw rocks, send pitchforks straight to me. <laughs> or send them to Dylan. He'll send them my way. But I'm going to say a 25. He'll transfer it. Amanda, give me your number on this. I'm, I'm going to give it a 20. I think it's high up there, but not 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 quite a perfect 25. And, and I think kind of similar to what Mike is saying, and, and or maybe not what he's saying, but similar. Uh, I don't know what I just said. Uh, is, yeah, w- whether or not they exist or not isn't what's the what is giving joy. It is the, the journey, not the destination, to, to co-op some, some cliches. Um there, there are unexplainable animals out there, so there could very well be a Sasquatch or a Yeti or a, um, what's the other one called? B- Bigfoot, Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah. They're, yeah they're, they're, whether they exist, Skunk have ape. existed, <laughs> might exist, are so being created, like it's just the, 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 the joy of discovery will always propel human beings sure, towards cryptid. Sure. So I'll, I'll give it a high you one. Can, you're going to give it 20. Okay. Yeah. So... With my answer for this, I, I think it really does matter if it exists or not. Okay. <laughs> and and not just in the mind. Not just in the mind. Okay. Not just in the mind. So I'm going to give it... I'm going to give it an 18. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh no. I'm, it's I'm still high. It, that's it's a buy, sell, or hold. That's a hold. <laughs> no, no, I'm giving it an 18. More than half. <laughs> we're, we're greater than half. We're, yeah. we're in a passing range. If we would be doing this as a grade, we're in a passing range grade that it's it's going to be plausible but i don't think it's i i feel like we would have seen it but at the same time we have seen a lot of things i'll take you to a monster truck show okay okay well we're going on to the next one bigfoot we're going to the next one yeah okay Okay, so another question that a lot of people wonder about okay are things like the ark from noah's ark what do y'all think the chances are 
Because that kind of fits into the cryptid category. Mm-hmm. Is it really a cryptid? Is it an animal? No, but it's this mysterious object that's out there. What do you think the chances are that some remnant of Noah's Ark is actually still on Earth with us? What do y'all think the chances are of that? Yeah, I think 25 because, I mean, whether it's a fossil or an imprint in a fossil, so it's like a negative, uh, which I guess is a fossil, but or if it's petrified wood, like... It, again, no. if thermodynamics are true and nothing can be created nor destroyed, it exists in some sense. Um, and I think I'll, 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 well, I might lower that then down to like a 22 because maybe we don't have like something we can hold and be like, this is the Ark. Um, but odds are there's probably something like that still exists or some kind of rock Since? that has that, that imprint of it. So yeah, I'm going to give it a pretty high score. I'll say 22. It's in Turkey. It's you, in Turkey. You said 20. Yeah. Man, I, I was going to give this like a five. <laughs> then you talked me into a 25, and then you or, talked me out of a 25. <laughs> I'll give my rating after Pastor Mike goes. Pastor Mike, Noah's Ark. 18. You're going to give 18? Passing, but but not 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 great. Yeah. It's like a B plus, yeah. maybe a C. Okay, I was going to originally give this a 5. Okay. I'm actually, I've come up. I'm okay. going to give it a 24. Oh, wow, yeah. And it is because of Amanda's logic. I, things do stay on this earth, and I think if it existed... And it was of the colossal scale as as described in scripture. And I believe this is the case. I do think there would be some, and again, it, it lands on a mountain. Mountains generally have a little bit higher altitude and things like that. Colder temperatures. Colder temperatures. I do think there would be some, maybe not a remnant of it, but maybe an imprint of it. There would be some definitive variable that we could see and touch. And I'm going to give it a 24 because of that. So mm-hmm. y'all, y'all talked me into that, even <laughs> though I decided against it. Okay, so next on the cryptid scale, this is just going to be a rating. We're going to do Mary Magdalene's skull. Oh, gosh. What we think the chances are that this is Mary Magdalene's skull. I brought the picture along. If you've seen the space kook from Scooby-Doo back in the original Scooby-Doo series, the alien from outer space that wears a space suit and just has a skull in it, this is what Mary Magdalene's skull looks like. So in France, in a church in France, they have this skull inside a glass container that looks like a space helmet, though it's got hair on it. You can clearly see this is meant to be a lady's body, but it's it's creepy. It's creepy. They, they did some tests on it. It is. That. No, I tell you what, I'm scared it's to not, take the kids to see that. Yeah, it's just scary. It's scary. <laughs> You're not <laughs> taking your caravan group to no, that church. Like, yeah, mom, kiddos, not a, the top of the yeah, church van. <laughs> yeah, no, not just not. <laughs> that is. That's not happening. Actually, I, I kind of think it's there's there is an exotic like interest in it, like it's a cryptid, but what do we think the chances are that's actually Mary Magdalene? They did do test on it. It's not a skull from France. It is from the first century. From the Jerusalem area, it's verified of a female of the right time, so it very possibly could. What do we think that is? Chances that it's Mary Magdalene. It's an icon, or not an icon, a um, relic. A relic, yeah, and a relic. I, I, I am not going up to bat with uh, the people who determine relics. <laughs> like that is so beyond my pay grade. Now I may not venerate in the same way that they do, but I just, I, I'm just gonna give that one like a, yeah, I'll give it a 24, um, and just leave it be. Pastor <laughs> Mike. I'm gonna give it a 25. I mean, if anybody goes to the extent to to make this relic and and they've got, I'll even say this: you, I would, I, I, I don't understand the whole venerating totally, but I can only imagine that people kiss this this oh, this yeah. lady. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. This this skull. So oh yeah. I, I'm gonna give it 25. Kiss it. Yeah. Oh no, not I don't know if I'm quite there yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No. So, ah. Uh, I actually put a lot of stock. There are some scams pulled in the history of church tradition where people have tried to call things things there aren't. There are people, there are villains. We, there's always false teachers, villains, people yeah. trying to pull wicked stuff. That That's that's just part of the fact of living outside of Eden and before the judgment of the living and the dead. You're going to have wolves in sheep's clothing. Okay. But at the same time, there's a reason why people do stuff within the church and there's a reason why God doesn't smite certain things off the earth because <laughs> God has done that before. Go read number 16. If this is not real, that would be the reason to do it. That would that is true. <laughs> I'm going to trust the tradition on this one and I'm going to give it a 25. Mm. Wow. And also because it's it's too bizarre not to be real like th- it, this is just so it's it's disturbing and interesting at the same time. Yeah. More it doesn't th- spark joy like the ark or or even Sasquatch would. It definitely yeah. is not hopeful. But it is evil. All right. 
we got to wrap things up. Okay. Number four. Okay. The last one. Last question. We'll end on this. What do you think the chances are that a remnant of the inscription on top of Jesus remains with us? Helena, Constantine, the emperor of Rome, his mm. mother, she got sent out of Rome. She came back into Rome. She went on this wild adventure when she was in her 70s to go find anything left of Jesus' mm. crucifixion. She turned up a piece of the inscription that Pontius Pilate had put on top of her. What do we think the chances are that that is actually from Jesus' cross and that any remnant of that really is hung around 2,000 years later? The inscription on top of Jesus' cross. Um, oh gosh, I'm going to give that like an 18 or a 20 because, again, it's some of part of me that's like, oh, yeah, that that's Christian tradition. We've almost have 2,000 years of that being a case. But at the same time, thinking historically, like, they, they threw a fit when they got Jesus's body off of the, the cross. They threw a fit when, when uh, whoever didn't put guards in front of Jesus's tomb. Like, I don't know if they were hanging around with an inscription that said King of the Jews. They were, That really ticked them off. So I think that may have gotten it pitched into a, a so fire pretty quickly. Yeah, I'll give it an 18. Pastor Mike? I give it a 7. A 7? <laughs> I, I just don't think it hung around. Yeah, yeah I feel you, like if you visit Jerusalem, I'm guaranteeing... I feel pretty confident that somebody will try to sell you just a little fragment of it. Oh, yeah. But See, obviously, I, but I still give that a zero. And, and I, th- seven. I think it's more likely that would have an issue than with Mary Magdalene's skull. Yeah. So I'm going to give that, and I'm going to pull up the picture of Mary Magdalene's skull just one more time so people can see it. <laughs> it's wild. It's so we can crazy. all be horrified. Yeah, this is not something I don't. It, I mean, if you're gonna fake something, this is a, that's a weird one to pull off. Yeah, right? that, well, and especially because you said like if if they've already tested it and they, they know it's from a similar error, even if that's not Mary Magdalene, that is somebody of importance whose skull they have kept and preserved for right. several generations. So right. like it, it just like it is. <laughs> it is, and, and that would be a weird one to fake too. Like, oh yeah, check out this item. Like, oh yeah. Well, we if you're gonna fake it, then why would it be that old of a skull? Like. That, that's a long time to carry around a fake skull. Yeah, that's true. Mo- yeah, right. Most most replicas, you're thinking, they just grabbed, like, somebody from the cemetery out back. Sure, so. and, and even when it comes to, like, faked documents and stuff like that, oftentimes they'll look at the paper, and the paper isn't the right age. It's right. one of the quickest ways to disprove something. And if you were going to fake a relic, what are the chances are you're going to get a female of the right region of the right era? Here, yeah. Like, so, yeah. Okay, so my deal with the inscription, I'm going to give it, I'll be generous. I'm going to give it a 17. Okay. I'm going to give it a 17. <laughs> Not quite. Yeah. So thank you for joining us. <laughs> we ran over. I tried to have something shorter at the end, but it's a fun program. We're going to have a good time. We'll be back next week. We might do our program outside, weather permitting. We might just have fun sitting around the new griddle. We got a griddle. Have fun <laughs> it's with good. that. It's good. It's good food. Yeah. Mm. Cook it. Um, we'll probably talk about St. Lawrence mm. next week just because of that. Um, he is the patron saint of cooks who died on a griddle, unfortunately. But thank you for joining us. May God bless you. May your house increase. May you have joy. God with you. Have a good day.